Welcome to the RootDown.us Community Podcast. My name is Melissa Rutter, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Ray Rubio, President and Fellow of the American Board of Oriental Reproductive Medicine, Chair of the Reproductive Medicine Specialty for the Yosan University Doctoral Program, and Doctor of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ray. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you here. So, um, for our viewers, our listeners, actually, I was wondering if you would share with us how you came to study Chinese medicine. Uh, sure. I think it's probably the same way that at least 50% of acupuncturists get into it. I um, had an a, uh, injury myself that was treated with uh, acupuncture. Uh, just very briefly, I um, years ago used to do um, a fair amount of martial arts training, and I dislocated my shoulder. And um, it made it very difficult to continue training because it kept popping out and it kept hurting and whatnot. And so I went the conventional route and um, got a few rounds of cortisone injections, which, you know, helped the pain a little bit at first, but then it would always come back. And finally, after the cortisone injection stopped working, someone suggested that I, um, you know, I should look into acupuncture. One of the guys I actually trained with suggested I should go see his acupuncturist. And this is like 18 years ago now. And uh, he, you know, said, oh, you should go see my acupuncturist. And I remember thinking after the cortisone injections, which are not very pleasant, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I, I really don't want any more needles. But, you know, the condition kept persisting and it was really hampering my training and whatnot. So finally I consented to go with this guy. And I was just amazed because it was actually, you know, not in the back of some herb shop in Chinatown. It was actually a Caucasian woman in Santa Monica. And, um, you know, it was, it was interesting. And I, I uh, kind of told her what was going on. And, you know, over a, over a period of time in a series of treatments, the shoulder gradually, I mean, it wasn't a miracle, but gradually got better and better. And um, the pain went away and I was able to train and it was just great. And so I asked her where she learned acupuncture. You know, I asked her, you know, did you have to live in a cave in China and bring the master his rice bowl and blah, blah, blah. And she said, uh, she said, no, it's like chiropractic school. And, uh, so she told me the name of the school that she went to, which was Samra university. And, uh, you know, I, I signed up and I enrolled and never looked back. And it was, um, I'll never forget the first class I went to was a summer night. Um, you know, I actually started during the summer quarter, not during the fall, and it was an intro to OM class from 6 to 9 o'clock on a summer night when most of my friends were out enjoying the summer evening, and the class was actually, you know, Samurai University at that time was actually kind of close to downtown LA in kind of a grungy building, and I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, what am I doing here? But I, I swear to God, I, I came out of that class three hours later, and it was like I had stepped back in time or something. I knew this was what I was supposed to do. And it's just been a, a fantastic adventure and spiritual experience. And, and, you know, every other experience I can think of has just been fantastic. I, I, I so enjoy Chinese medicine on so many levels, on an emotional level, on an intellectual level, on a spiritual level. Um, I just like being part of the cycle of life that Chinese medicine seems to embrace. Excellent, excellent. I know that one of the things that, that I always remember from our previous conversations was how you would say that you used to, um, you would be willing to practice this medicine as a hobby. You love it that much. 
you know, so that's, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's just, uh, you know, how many people in life get to actually do their dharma as well as their karma, you know? They get to make a living doing something that feels meaningful and helps others. And, uh, you know, Chinese medicine, I think, at least according to the way my doctor, my, my teacher, Dr. Shen, said is, um, you know, that money should never be your first goal. The first goal should be to, to serve others and uh, help people with suffering. And, you know, if you get to make a living at it, that's yeah, just bonus. Absolutely. So how did your practice of this medicine evolve into specializing in fertility? You started out with an experience that was muscle and structural and skeletal related. Yeah, yeah, you know, well, the, the experience that was muscle and structural is what got me into school. And then, you know, when you're in school, you treat whatever comes in the door as an intern. And then when you graduate from school, you take whatever comes into the door because you're, <laughs> you're trying to make a living. I just happen to have, you know, now I think, of course, you know, the universe always brings you what you're ready for, but. I just happened to have a bunch of um, fertility patients, first one, and then when I kind of blindly, not knowing what I was doing, helped that patient to get pregnant, and then I got another one, and over a period of time, even though I was seeing other types of cases, I was getting these referrals of fertility patients, and I, and I quickly found out that I was way out of my depth. You know, I just, they would come in and say, oh, my, my doctor says this, my doctor says that, and this is my hormone, and this is my diagnosis. And I would smile and go, hmm, oh. But, you know, I, I had no idea what they were talking about. And, you know, this is way back in the day when, you know, reproductive endocrinologists were still using Pergonol and, and those types of medications. And, and so, and, you know, there was no internet, and there was no real Chinese text translated. So I, I basically had to go to the UCLA uh, Medical School Library, you know, I UCLA alumni, so I had access, and I just went and started reading any book on reproductive medicine that I could find on reproductive endocrinology, and trying to learn as least as much as I could from that side. And then I, I you know, read as much as I could out of out of Giovanni's Red Book, you know. And uh, there was no Jane Littleton treatment of infertility. There was no Randine Lewis. There was nothing like that back then. So it was a a long, slow, and painful learning curve, but. Uh, one that was well worth it. Sounds like it, and it's it's uh, it's very interesting that you sort of had to go back to the very basics and, and do that research yourself in order to grow into that. You know, what a wonderful way to learn the medicine too. Um, so what? Because your practice today, um, I think, is 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 unique in terms of practitioners in the field, and in part because you have been in practice for quite some time, and that all of your patients that come to you come to you for fertility reasons. And I'm curious to know what has been the most challenging part of building your practice into that specialty. Well, you know, I think, and this probably leads into a broader question, which I'm sure we'll come to, is the whole issue of specialization. And I think it's one that kind of, you know, um, it's definitely a somewhat of a, sadly, it's a contentious issue within our field, but I think it's an issue that needs to be um, confronted and looked at and talked about. Um, you know, the challenging part of, of being a specialist is that you have to turn down other cases, right? And I think for most acupuncturists, I, I forget what the statistics are off the top of my head, but I think something on the order of within two years of getting their license, 50% um, of acupuncturists are out of business and the other 50% are 
only doing it part-time as a hobby and they still have to have another job and within five years out of being being licensed 80 percent of acupuncturists are out of practice and 50 percent are still doing it part-time so you know statistically there's a lot of acupuncturists are not successful business people and you know i think part of it is they they try to be all things to all people you know um and when I say all things to all people, and you know, and by the way, all this stuff is just kind of my own general observations and opinion. I don't know that I can base it on any hard um, statistics or data or research that I've done or any research that our profession has done. It's just based on kind of my own observation of having been a, a teacher in an acupuncture school for a decade and having lots of acupuncturists come to me for advice. So based on that, I would say that you know, one of the most challenging parts of specializing is that you just have to trust that if you say no, you know, and patient calls my office and says, hey, you know, I, I have low back pain or I have neck pain or I have uh, eczema or I have this or that, that I have to say, you know, I'm sorry, I, I only work with reproductive uh, patients, uh, infertility patients, but I can refer you to a great orthopedic specialist or I know a great dermatology specialist and they'll really be able to help you much better than I you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes difficult to trust that you're going to, you're going to be okay if you turn down patients. But, you know, what I have found is that, um, the more you specialize in something, the more it, um, broadens and deepens your understanding of Chinese medicine. You know, I've heard some people say, oh, well, if, if all you do is specialize and you're really narrowing the medicine and Chinese medicine's bigger than that. But I have actually found that the more I learn about reproductive medicine from a Western point of view, the more, the more it provokes um, thought and reasoning and um, exploration of Chinese medicine. Because um, I have to figure out how different things manifest from a Western medicine point of view, what does that mean from a Chinese medicine point of view? Because it's not always explained in the text or in the articles. So, you know, I, I, I think it's it's challenging. And, you know, the other challenging part of being a specialist is that you just, depending on what part of your specialty, uh, you know, or what your specialty is, there's constantly new information to learn. So if you're going to be a specialist, you really do have to walk with one foot in the Western world of that specialty and one foot in the Chinese world. So for example, because I specialize in infertility, I'm a member of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. So I have to be a member of that society, pay dues, and, and go to the conference every year, which is not cheap. I'm a member of the Pacific Coast Society for Reproductive Medicine. Um, and uh, I have to pay the dues for that society and go to their conference every year. I'm a member of the European Society for Human Reproduction and Embryology. So I have to pay their dues and I have to try and go to that conference at least once every two or three years because it's over in Europe. So there's there's extra expense and extra time commitment involved with being a specialist. But if you love what you specialize in, it's totally worth it because you get to go to these conferences and rub elbows with other people who are in that specialty and, and talk to them in depth about whatever issue it is, whether it's endometriosis or pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or epigenetics or whatever it is. And you can have these really thought-provoking questions. And they're very interested in Chinese medicine and the data uh, for Chinese medicine that relates to infertility. And it's just, it's a blast. So, 
you know, the challenge is it's a, it's a bigger time commitment. You got to study all the time and you have to be willing to say no to patients that aren't in your specialty, but the payoffs are just as big. It sounds like it. It sounds like a very exciting opportunity to be able to be involved with professionals in the Western medical side of it and have the opportunity to connect with them and sort of bring the medicine to a different platform. Yeah. It's very um Yeah, and you know, in terms of that that kind of brings up the other question of, you know, why is it you know, do I think it's important for people to specialize or not specialize or do, is that important for our field? Um you know, the answer is yes and no. Um for example, my teacher, Dr. Shen, was not a specialist. Um, he saw everything that came in the door. Um, but I also think that people of Dr. Shen's skill uh, with Chinese medicine come along maybe once every 300 years. I don't think everyone can be Zhang Zongjing. I think, that, I think they're there as goals for us to aspire to, but I think you know, that's just a level of skill and expertise that, that most acupuncturists probably don't have and will never have. Um, I also think that, you know, I think, I think in our field, in, in the United States anyways, Chinese medicine is practiced here, I think there's room for both. I think there's room for generalists and specialists. Like one of the biggest gripes we heard when we formed the American Board of Oriental Reproductive Medicine and wanted to board certify people as specialists in infertility is, you know, people were saying, oh, that's, you know, specialism is, you know, being a specialist is not part of Chinese medicine and being a generalist is the strength of the medicine and blah, blah, blah. And, and I guess what I, I just could never quite wrap my head around is, um, you know, if someone wants to be a specialist, let them be a specialist. And if someone wants to be a generalist, like I don't have a problem with someone else being a generalist, but many of the generalists seem to have a problem with me being a specialist, which seems a little peculiar. It sounds to me like it's, it's less about patient care and more about um, businesses being threatened or, or perceived threats to business or you know, um, patient referrals or something like that. And, and I, you know, I don't think that's really the case. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, I have several friends who are specialists in other areas of specialty, whether it's orthopedics and pain management or rheumatology or dermatology or pediatrics or oncology, and they all love what they do and they, they, they're good at what they do. And frankly, I have to tell you, just from my own perspective, I've obviously worked with peds patients. I've worked with skin patients. I've worked with low back pain and lumbar radiculopathy and you know I've treated everything under the sun during my years of growth before I just decided to specialize in only reproductive medicine um, and could I treat some of those cases absolutely I could treat them but I have to be frank with you if it's a case of chronic psoriasis or eczema or uh, dermatomyositis or psoriatic arthritis or some pediatric case that's more complicated or, or definitely oncology or some of the more complex immune diseases or inflammatory bowel diseases, you know, I would love to be able to refer those patients to someone who knows that stuff in and out. Because, yeah, I mean, if someone comes in with a case of hives, I could give them some Xiaofeng San and probably 60 to 70 percent of the time they'd feel much better. But if it's much more complicated than that, I think I'm actually doing the patient a disservice by not sending them to someone who really knows um, dermatological conditions and who can help them. Um, 
So I think there's room for specialists and generalists uh, in our profession, and I think they'll actually strengthen each other. That makes complete sense, and uh, sort of you know feeds the uh, the idea of you know Eastern and Western medicine working together as well, which is sometimes a, another inflammatory um, dialogue within the field. Now you mentioned um, the American Board of Oriental Reproductive Medicine, and um, I'm curious if you would be interested in sharing with us how that came to be formed and what some of its goals are. Sure, yeah, yeah. The, the American Board of Oriental Reproductive Medicine, or the ABORM as it's referred to, um, was formed about five years ago. Um, it was formed by uh, subject matter experts and leaders in the field who were published or who had doctorate degrees or what have you. Um, uh, to actually um, develop a uh, board certification examination so that there could be some way to demonstrate um, to our peers and to our colleagues in Western reproductive medicine that there is some sort of minimum standard uh, of competency for the field. Um, so the, the board was formed by, uh, like I said, subject matter experts. And um, it's a nonprofit, a 501c6, so no one is paid, and the money that comes in for the exams goes into um, the nonprofit organization for continuing to certify fellows and raise standards in the field and educate our uh, reproductive endocrinologists about this, the uh, strengths of uh, Chinese medicine as it applies to infertility. Um, to promote the knowledge of Chinese medicine and research as it uh, relates to infertility, to improve the training standards uh, for those who want to work with infertility patients, and so on and so on and so on. So that was how the ABRM was formed. And one of the reasons we did it is um, many of us who, who worked only with fertility patients started noticing a couple of things. Number one, um, we started um, hearing rumors of reproductive endocrinologists who were taking the research protocols for acupuncture and IVF and basically just dumbing it down and having their nurses do the acupuncture under their supervision. Because if, if a doctor supervises the procedure, then it's okay. And, uh, and what we saw was that, you know, in time, that could really be the death knell for the field, and, and, and more importantly, it would be really deleterious to patients because the Chinese treatment of infertility is so much more than a protocol in terms of um, helping patients conceive. The, 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 I, the treatments that are done just before and after the embryo transfer, or the treatments that are done, the acupuncture treatments that are done leading up to um, an oocyte pickup um, for uh, an IVF cycle, it's just really the, um, the beginning, the most simplistic part of the process. Um, you know, the treatment of infertility involves, as, as anything in Chinese medicine, involves a correct diagnosis of the pattern of disharmony, an examination of the patient's lifestyle and diet and exercise, um, and, and a longer course of uh, preconception care that really increases clinical pregnancy rates and more importantly live birth rates. So we started noticing that um, you know there there were cases where the nurses were doing the acupuncture and we, we didn't think that was a good idea. And we also started noticing that there were patients that were getting referred to us who had seen other acupuncturists 
and who'd been maybe working with another acupuncturist for a year or more. And the acupuncturist was a generalist um, who understood the basics of, you know, kidney deficiency as it relates to infertility, but didn't know enough about Western reproductive medicine to know that the patient they were treating had had chlamydia back in college, and so now they had bilaterally obstructed fallopian tubes. And the acupuncturist didn't know enough to ask that and didn't know enough to send them to, to be evaluated with a hysterosalpinogram and, you know, and didn't know enough to at least alert the patient that, you know, probably their best course of action would be to do an IVF cycle and bypass the fallopian tubes. So, you know, we were afraid that if there were enough of those types of cases that got around that, you know, reproductive endocrinologists would start telling their patients, don't go to acupuncturists because they don't know what they're doing. So we set up the ABRM kind of as a way of um, uh, showing minimum standards and minimum competency within our own profession so that those standards and competencies were not enforced upon us by Western medicine. And how, um, how long has the American Board of Oriental Reproductive Medicine been around? It's been uh, in place. The board was formed about five years ago, and we got our nonprofit recognition from the feds about four years ago. Um, and we've just had um, our second uh, board certification exam um, this year in 2009 in April. The first one was in 2008. And the next um, board exam will be uh, in April of 2010, and it's going to be offered in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, on a Thursday, just before the start of the three-day AAAOM conference, which is, you know, the American Association of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine. They have their annual conference every year. Uh, and next year, the AAAOM conference is in Albuquerque. And we decided to piggyback the ABRM exam just at the start of that conference so that people could kind of kill two birds with one stone and take the ABRM exam and then stay on for the conference and get a bunch of CEUs at the same time. And there will be an entire track of courses devoted to um, infertility diagnosis and treatment in the AAAOM conference. So those taking the ABRM exam can stay on and, and learn more about their specialty. Wow, yeah. that's really exciting. It should be a good time. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, perhaps we'll see you there. Um, so you're a teacher as well, Ray. You've you've taught at um, Emperor's. You supervised there, and um, you're also, I know, going to be moving forward on the doctoral program with Yosan. I'm curious to know how your experience as an instructor has informed the work that you do within your own practice, and also with the American Board of Oriental Reproductive Medicine. Yeah, you know, um, I've been a teacher for a little over a decade and a clinical supervisor for about the same time. And, you know, I'd say number one, being a teacher has um, really reminded me on a daily basis how little I really know. Um, because things that being a teacher will be the quickest way to humble yourself uh, and make you really dig into the medicine. Because, for example, you're teaching um, Oriental Medicine Diagnosis, which is a class that I taught for a while. And you'll say something like, um, you know, uh, this patient, you know, these are the signs and symptoms of um, a Chiang Mai disharmony. 
and the treatment points for the Chiang Mai are spleen 4 and P6. That's the opening and uh, paired point for the Chiang Mai. And someone will raise their hand and they'll say, why? Like, why is spleen 4 the opening point for the Chiang Mai and P6 the meeting point? Frankly, I don't know. And it's just questions like that that you just kind of take for granted because you learned it somewhere and you, and you don't know the answer. It really makes you dig into it and dig into the medicine and study more. And it, and it, and it kind of, you know, just keeps you, keeps you humble, keeps you, you know, a, a tabula rasa and keeps you as a learner. Um, and that's important because, you know, one thing Dr. Shen taught me is every patient is a teacher. If you listen to them and you listen to not only what they're saying, but what they're not saying, um, that's sometimes the key to figuring out and unraveling the diagnosis for the patient. So I guess the best answer I could give in terms of how a teacher has helped me in my private practice and helped me with the ABRM is it's really kept me uh, in the state of being a learner and a listener. And I think that's crucial uh, for, for being a good doctor and being a good leader. I would have to agree. That's uh, one of the reasons why I started studying Chinese medicine was because I knew that there would be a lifetime of learning involved with it. So yeah. it's fantastic. So you're also in the process of developing a doctoral program at Yosan with a focus in fertility. Um, how is this different from some of the other doctoral programs out there? And what are some of the strengths and weaknesses um, of these programs in general that you would like to see addressed through the program with Yosan? That's a great question, yeah. We're, we are really, really excited about the DAOM program that's um, going to be rolling out uh, next year uh, at Yosan. Um, I'm excited, obviously, because the first specialty that's going to be coming out with that program is going to be a specialty in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, which is you know my area of specialty, and I, I just love it, and I find it so interesting, so I'm excited about that. Um, the difference between the Yosan program so far and other programs out there is that um, although there are a couple other programs that have an emphasis in um, women's health um, and they have maybe a weekend or two in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, they're really more women's health programs, not infertility programs, and they don't really address male factor. As we know, 40 to 60 percent of infertility uh, is, is male factor, at least partially or completely. And so any program that you know wants to emphasize the treatment of infertility needs to really dig in depth in the field of male factor infertility as well. So I'm excited that we're going to have a program that's going to be really, really just uh, very narrowly focused in the treatment of reproductive endocrinology and infertility. And we have just incredible faculty. We have just a whole slate of reproductive endocrinologists and fertility specialists from uh, UCLA and USC and and uh, Duke and Stanford and and um, et cetera that are going to be teaching the courses, and we have a whole bunch of TCM fertility specialists as well. Not to mention the fact that there's just in the first cohort of um, doctoral candidates, I think there's close to a hundred people registered, and we're only going to be able to accept like thirty or forty in the first class. So there's a great deal of interest in this field. Um, and also that the people who, who take this doctoral program, if they're not already ABRM certified, at the end of the first year in the program, they will be ready to sit for the ABRM exam and hopefully pass it so that they'll, they'll graduate with a DAOM 
degree with a specialty in infertility, and they'll be ABRM certified. So it's it's pretty much the closest approximation to how how doctoral program specialty and, and fellowships work in uh, Western medicine. So we're excited about that. Um, and, and we just really want to see in this program a, a great emphasis on um, good clinical skills uh, from both a Western and a Chinese medicine point of view in working with infertility patients. So that the when, when people graduate from this DAOM program, they're going to be so used to working hand-in-hand -hand with reproductive endocrinologists just by virtue of the people that are going to be teaching in the program and by virtue of um, the clinical rotations they're going to do. We're going to actually have clinical rotations set up in different reproductive endocrinologists' office and by virtue of the fact that the research that they're going to be doing, that they're going to come out um, feeling very, very confident in working with um, all types of infertility, both male and female. That is incredibly exciting. It sounds like um, it's a sort of a pioneer in so many capacities in terms yeah. of how doctoral programs could be structured for the field of Chinese medicine. Yeah, I, you know, I actually, it's interesting because, you know, as I understand it, the doctoral program, the DAOM doctoral program, the Doctor of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine degree, is a clinical doctorate. It is not meant to be a PhD program. So in a sense, the DAOM program is meant to kind of fill the place that's missing in Chinese medicine here that is present in Western medicine here, and that's namely a residency. You know, when, a, when an MD graduates from med school, they all go on and do residency. They do two years of family practice or three years of pediatrics or three years of gynecology or whatever it is they're going to specialize in. That's where they learn the real medicine that they're going to practice, right? And very few... I mean, even generalist, which is a family practice doctor or an internist, you know, they still go on and do residency. They don't just graduate from med school and kind of go out and practice like we do in Chinese medicine. You you graduate after four years and you kind of have to go set up a shingle. And uh, and so, you know, I think the DAOM programs are, are kind of to fill that void where a residency should be. And so therefore, just in my opinion, the more the more narrow the focus is in terms of a uh, of, of your specialty, probably the more it actually acts like a true residency. It's very interesting. I hadn't thought of it in that perspective. I definitely think that's something that could help to strengthen the field of Chinese medicine. Um, so you've had this uh, sort of kaleidoscope view of the medicine um, as a student, as a patient, as an instructor in your own private practice, in your work with the American Board of Oriental Reproductive Medicine, and now in your experience of creating this doctoral program with Yosan. Um, that's a very informed view, one that not, not everybody has the opportunity to undertake in their career. And I'm curious to know how this feeds into your thoughts about what the biggest challenge is for the future development of Chinese medicine is something that's a reputable, preventable healthcare modality. Yeah, you know, um, well, you know, I think it's probably the, the same challenge that faces any new profession. And of course, that, that is the irony, right, is that Chinese medicine is, is pretty much the oldest medicine or oldest structured medicine on the planet, you know, approaching 3,000 years. So it's it's ancient, but as a profession in this country, it's still a baby. I mean, it's basically in, in any real 
sense of the word, Chinese medicine didn't really start being practiced until the early 70s here in terms of acupuncture. You know, for sure it was used 100 years ago amongst the Chinese population and amongst um, Anglos who knew enough to go to the Chinese doctors back when they were, you know, building the railroads that connected this country. But as a truly kind of accepted and board certified and regulated profession, it wasn't until the early 70s. So it's still very young. And so therefore, I think the challenges facing our profession are number one, education. Um, the problem is, is that Chinese medicine schools often have teachers who they can afford more so than teachers who are good at teaching. Um, there's not a lot of, you know, there may be acupuncturists who um, are good acupuncturists but not such great teachers. I'm not sure that that's absolutely unique to Chinese medicine. I, you know, I went to UCLA and there were some lecturers who were great teachers and there are some lecturers who were great scientists but not great teachers. Sometimes you had both. So it's definitely not unique to our profession, but the problem is, is that in our profession, the funding is so limited and what they're willing to pay supervisors and teachers is so limited that you often end up with what the school can afford rather than what's best for the student. And so therefore, that carries through into the types of graduates you end up with, you know, um, no examination can measure expertise, right? Only training and experience can measure expertise, but you still need some sort of a, a minimum bar, right? For, for safety sake and for, for some sort of even playing field. So therefore you have the California State Board exam or you have the NCCAOM exam or you have the ABRM exam. You need some sort of minimum standard entry level for the profession or for the specialty, but then you need increased training. And so part of that is, is developing these DAOM programs to allow people more in-depth training and specialties, try developing more, um, more other types of training programs related to specialties. For example, there are, I think Con Herbs does a pediatric training program now. Um, Mazen Al-Kajafi, who is one of the authors of the, um, blue acupuncture text, the acupuncture manual with Peter Dedman. Uh, Mazen Al-Kajafi practices in London and he offers a um, dermatology um, certification exam and training. And he's just brilliant. I mean, you know, the, 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 the practitioners that come out of his training program and his certification program are just unbelievably effective in the treatment of, of, um, uh, dermatological conditions way more than Western medicine. I mean, when it, if it's much beyond, you know, retin A, uh, Accutane, antibiotics, and steroids, Western medicine really doesn't have a lot to offer chronic skin conditions. Chinese medicine has a lot to offer if the person knows what they're doing. So, in in my opinion, you know, one of the challenges we face is we need to have more specialists available. And as I said before, I don't think we should just be a specialist profession, but I think patients should be allowed to go to specialists if they choose to or need to. And to have more specialists, you need to have better training. And the number of people who are actually qualified to do that training is limited and the profession can't afford to pay them enough. So kind of perpetuates the, the, um, lack of really adequate training in the program. That's one thing. The other thing I would say, obviously, is that 
the majority of us, myself included, do not speak Chinese. So we're limited in how thoroughly we can access the wealth of information that's available in the Chinese language. Um, I'm not sure how you get around that because for me, it's hard enough trying to keep up on, on the books and journals that are published in English related to Chinese medicine without learning Chinese at the same time. But I think that definitely uh, waters down how we practice. It's just we don't speak the language that the medicine comes from. Uh, and um, in terms of, you know, making it um, a more integrated uh, medicine into the healthcare system in the United States, I think that will come with higher levels of training. I think for better or worse, our system is run by the Western medical system and by MDs. They're the gatekeepers, right? And they work hand in hand with the insurance companies. And I think, you know, just using my own experience, um, you know, if, if you want to work with infertility patients and, you know, the RE calls you, the reproductive endocrinologist calls you and says, hey, you know, I'm seeing this patient and they said that they're seeing you and I just want you to know that in their next IVF cycle, we're going from a microdose flare protocol to an antagonist cycle um, because the last time their recruitment was poor, blah, 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 blah. And, and they hear silence on the phone and they can tell you have no idea what they're talking about. It makes them not want to integrate with Chinese medicine. It makes them not trust it because it, it makes them feel like you're flying blind. So, and so I think the more that we can, um, you know, the more specialists we have, um, the, the likelier that it's going to open doors for everyone, even the non-specialists, because you'll have people that specialize in inflammatory bowel disease. You'll have people that specialize in skin conditions. You'll have people that specialize in orthopedics. You'll have people that specialize in oncology. And the doctors will see that not only these guys speak the Western language, but more importantly, that they have a medicine that really works and that it's a very valuable adjunct to what they're doing and the patients get better and the outcomes improve. And that's just going to open the door for all of us and improve acceptance amongst patients because they'll feel like instead of, instead of feeling like, which is common nowadays, by the way, I mean, study after study has shown this, is that nine times out of 10, patients really want to use complementary and alternative medicine, but they hide it from their doctors because they don't want to feel ashamed, they don't want to feel ridiculed, they don't want to feel like they're doing something wrong, so they hide it from their doctors. And, and that, that is not good for integration. It's not good for the patient, it's not good for our profession. So in that, in the, in the three things that you've named, and you sort of touched a little bit on it in terms of the integrated medicine as to how we could address that challenge, but I'm curious to know if you have any ideas on how to address the challenge of making our education better, stronger, um, especially when the foundation of it seems to come from a lack of funding? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I think Bob Flaws wrote about this once, or I can't remember who wrote about it, but you know, it would be helpful if our alumni associations were a little bit more proactive and provided the schools with endowments. I mean, if you look at any private institution, and, and all acupuncture schools are private institutions, they're not state schools, right? Any private institution in the country has a huge endowment, and that endowment is invested, and that endowment is the majority of what pays for high-quality faculty. It's how they recruit faculty, you know, whether it's Harvard or 
Williams or Stanford or whatever it is, right? I mean, even public schools like UCLA and Cal, you know, they have endowments as well. So part of it is we just as a profession, I think two things. We need a lot more of our involvement to pay for lobbyists so that our voice is heard and our right to practice is protected and, and our access to patients is expanded. That's one thing. Uh, number two, we need more research, a lot more research, not, not to restrict what we do, but to open opportunities. Because the bottom line is, I think if we start really actively collecting data in terms of um, outcomes for patient conditions in a broad range of areas, from orthopedics to pediatrics to infertility to what have you, we'll start seeing a trend where the actual um, cost for treating patients from a Western medicine point of view decrease if you integrate it with Chinese medicine. That will open the doors for more insurance reimbursement if people want that. I personally run a cash-only practice. I don't really trust insurance companies. I think it's probably you know, catch-22 getting involved in the insurance business. But for those in our profession who really want to work with insurance uh, reimbursement and, and be able to take care of more patients and have their insurance pay for the Chinese medicine, the key to doing that is good research outcomes because that's, that, that's all insurance companies do. They crunch numbers, they look at research, and if it looks like the research supports positive outcomes that decrease their costs, then that's what they're going to do. No, no amount of talking about the wonders of and legacy and lineage of Chinese medicine is going to change their mind. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not, they don't really care that the medicine's been around for 3,000 years. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so that's that. And then, you know, the training just has to get better. And I think that will change, um, you know, as the DAOM programs get more um, uh, set up and stabilized, we'll have, you know, more and more people coming out with DAOM degrees. Um, and, and therefore, they will be able to be teachers, and they'll be better teachers because they have a better degree. And then hopefully if we, if we set up, if the schools have more active alumni who donate to an endowment, then the schools will have better teachers. And the more DAOMs you have, hopefully the, the more specialists you have will make a better income, so therefore they can uh, contribute to an endowment, and so on and so on and so on. It's a cyclical process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what about the uh, the Chinese language that you mentioned earlier in terms of us sort of being disconnected from our roots because we don't really have the the training to understand the language as it is? Do you have any suggestions or thoughts as, as to how we could address that? Yeah, you know, I, I don't see that really changing unless the TCM programs basically hire good Chinese language instructors and from the first, like it's just basically you're told from the first day of Chinese medicine school that every single quarter until you graduate or every trimester, depending on how the school set up, you will take Chinese for all four years and you'll learn it by the time you're done. In other words, don't make it a, um, a elective course, make it a required course and, you know, make completing it. And, you know, as part of the comprehensive exam at the end of your, your schooling, you actually have to be able to read and translate translate medical Chinese. Right. You know, that, I think that's the only way it's going to turn out, turn around as if it becomes mandatory. Right now it's elective. Most people don't do it. It's never going to turn around otherwise. It has to be required. 
Yeah, and, and for many, that, that would be their only real exposure to it because um, the opportunity right now in the field in terms of getting fellowships and going to China for extended periods of time is very limited. Yeah, um, it is. Well, so. And also, so many of the Chinese programs are basically just set up to take your money and kind of walk you around and go, oh, this is an acupuncture needle. And this is, you know, it's ridiculous. They're a waste of time, most of them. So. Right. Um, so, you know, I think, I think that needs to change. But, you know, one other aspect of this, as, as I think about this whole language issue, is that, you know, I, I think anyone who can read medical Chinese, whether or not they speak it, but if they can read the journals and the books, it opens up a whole world of information to them. But at the mm -hmm. same time, the, you can't ipso facto say the opposite is untrue. In other words, if you don't speak Chinese, that you cannot be a competent practitioner of Chinese medicine. And the reason I say that is it would be equally, be, be equally absurd to say that an MD in China can't practice Western medicine effectively because he doesn't speak English. Mm. Right? That's a, that's At a some point, point, you just have to rely on the translation, the Western mm -hmm. medicine translated into Chinese or into African or whatever language it's translated in, and the Chinese medicine translated into English or Spanish or whatever language, you know. I mean, I think it definitely, like I said, it, it, it uh, narrows the pool that you can uh, draw from when you're trying to learn stuff. But, you know, you, someone who, who speaks English only should still be able to become competent if they really um, put their mind to it. I would agree with you. Um, okay. So thank you so much for your time today, Ray. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Rubio's practice, you can view his website at www.westlakecomplementarymedicine.com. And to learn more about the American Board of Oriental Reproductive Medicine, please visit www.aborm.org. And of course, you can always reach Dr. Rubio via the community section of the rootdown.us site as well, simply by typing his name into the search engine. So thank you very much, Ray, for your time today. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. You have a good day. You too.